Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1. I'm just going to read verse 1 for you because that's as far as we're going to get tonight. We will actually cover a lot more verses next week, but tonight we're just going to get to verse 1, mainly because we're going to spend some time doing an introduction to the book of Matthew as well to help you out. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, most scholars believe that verse number 1 is the title for this whole book. Listen to it again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As you're going to see and where we go tonight, this is a very crucial verse. Now, there's a similarity, though, also here in verse 1 with Genesis chapter 5. Go with me back to Genesis chapter 5 and look at verse 1. The phrase, the book of the genealogy, is exactly the same as Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, and that goes on. In Genesis 5, we see the genealogy of mankind, starting with Adam, and Adam gave birth to so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and and so on. Um, Matthew starts off his gospel in the same way. He starts off just like you see in Genesis 5.1. He starts off with the book of the genealogy. But this is now of Jesus Christ. And as you're going to see in a little bit, there's going to be a distinction between Matthew's genealogy and the genealogy in Genesis and also the genealogy of of Luke. We'll see that a little bit tonight and a lot more as we study it in the weeks to come. What I want to do tonight is take some time to kind of get you ready for the book of Matthew, because in order to interpret it correctly, you've got to understand who he was writing to. What was God's purpose in inspiring Matthew to write this book? And why was he writing it? And who was he writing it to? Because that makes a big difference in how you interpret the scripture. For example, for for years, we in the church have tried to just read ourselves into Matthew's gospel. And I'm going to show you in a little bit over time. There are things in here that were for the church. The church is actually mentioned in Matthew's gospel twice. In chapter 16, when Peter makes his profession of his faith, Jesus says, upon this rock, or this profession of this faith, I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. The church is mentioned in Matthew. Also in chapter 18, when he gets to the part about if you have a disagreement with somebody, you go see them. If they don't listen, you bring somebody with you. And then if they don't listen to them, you go see the church, bring them before the church. So the church is mentioned. There's going to be stuff here for us. But as you're going to see tonight, as we lay this all out, and I show you from Scripture, The main audience of the book of Matthew were Jews, Jewish converts from Judaism to Christianity, but mainly his writing was to Jews. And when you keep that in mind and understand that Matthew's writing to Jews and that there's a distinction between Jews, Gentiles, and the church, it'll help you interpret the scripture more correctly. Has anybody ever heard the Bible talk about rightly dividing the word of God. It's not an accident that that word there is there, dividing the word of God. Go with me real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and look at verse 32. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse 32, and you'll see that in the eyes of Paul, there were three distinct groups. In verse 32, It says, give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Isn't that interesting? 
Three very distinct groups. The Jews, the Greeks, and the church of God. God has a plan for the Jews. Now, Jewish people that come to faith in Jesus Christ become a part of the church. Jew and Gentile together make up the church. And Jewish believers who are part of the church are going to be incorporated in God's plan for the church. But has the church replaced the nation of Israel? No. You've heard that very clearly, hopefully, over my teaching over the many, many years. God's not done with Israel. Romans chapter 11 spends the whole chapter dealing with that. He asks two or three times, is God done with Israel? By no means. There's a distinction. God has a specific plan for the people of Israel. He has a specific plan for the Gentiles or those who reject God. And he has a specific plan for the church. Keeping that in mind, we're going to interpret and look at this book of Matthew as we go through it. Keeping in mind that Matthew was inspired by God to write this gospel, but he's to write it to Jewish people. And that will become very more evident in time. Now also, um, look how far uh, Matthew traces the lineage of Jesus back. In verse 2, he starts with who? Abraham. Go with me real quick to Luke chapter 3. All right, in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 23, it says Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph. You see that? It's interesting. We'll talk a lot more about that when we get to this section of the genealogy in Matthew. Uh, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then it lists all the different descendants. And it traces it all the way back. Look at verse 38. It goes all the way back to who? Adam. Yeah. He goes all the way back, starting with Joseph, Jesus, and then Joseph. Traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam. Genesis 5 starts with Adam and goes forward. But Matthew's gospel only traces uh, Jesus' genealogy as far back as who? As Abraham. You're going to see that's very, very important because he's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience and he's showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of the one through Abraham and as you're going to see tonight through David and that proves that he's the Christ. Oh, by the way, look at verse 1 again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and we're going to look at that tonight, how he wants to prove that Jesus is the promised one, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that's why Matthew only traces Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham. He's got a purpose in writing, and he's writing to a specific group of people. Who now? Jews, who are converts to to Christianity. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. That'll be important as well. Matthew's authorship of this gospel was never really questioned by the early church. Unfortunately, over the years, as men has considered themselves wiser than God, uh, there has been this Q theory that has gone out there and how there are those who say that because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are so similar in many ways, that there must have been this Q source that they all copied from, and they all copied from this one source when they wrote their Gospels. And I say to you, hang on for a second, the Bible actually says very clearly that every word of Scripture is God-breathed. Not that they were copying from some source. And if I and James and Glenn decided to write a story about someone that we all knew and followed and lived with, our stories would be pretty similar, wouldn't they be? Shouldn't surprise us that we'd write almost the same things because we all saw the same things. So 
There are those who over the years, and I'm not going to get into it any more than that, have tried to say that Matthew wasn't really written by God through Matthew. It's just Matthew copied this one source, and Mark copied this one source, and Luke copied this one source, and then they told their stories from there. It's, it's hogwash. Actually, um, one of the early church fathers, his name was Origen. He lived around the time of 184 to 254 A.D. This is a quote from Origen. It says, among the four Gospels, which are the only indisputable ones in the church of God under heaven, I have learned by tradition that the first was written by Matthew, who was at once a publican, but afterwards an apostle of Jesus Christ, and it was prepared for the converts from Judaism. This is, that's an actual quote written down in a book called the Ecclesiastical History, and, and that's a quote from Origen way, way back. All right. So it's always been understood that it was Matthew that who wrote this, this book. Now, the reason why people have even said, well, what's the issue? You'll never see Matthew say, I wrote this book. Actually, you'll, if you look at the Gospel of Mark, Mark never says, I wrote the book of Mark. If you look at the Gospel of Luke, Luke never says, I wrote the Gospel of Luke. And John never says, I wrote the gospel of John. Now, when Paul would write his letters, he would always start them with, hey, this is Paul writing to Timothy or so-and-so. But in the four gospels, the four guys that God inspired through the Holy Spirit to write the story of Jesus' life for their individual purposes to their individual audiences, none of them put their names in the book, except when they had to. And when they had to, they did it in a very interesting way. Those of you that know your, your Bible a little bit, whenever John would mention himself, how did he describe himself? He wouldn't say me. He'd say the one whom Jesus loved. He would never say, I, John. He said the disciple whom Jesus loved. Well, you're going to see. Go to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew does something interesting here in his gospel when he has to list his name. In Matthew chapter 10, look at verses 1 through 4. Is That's where we're going to get to the account of where Jesus chooses the 12 apostles and sends them out. And in Matthew chapter 10, look at verses 1 through 4. And he, this is Jesus, called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. There's first Simon, who's called Peter. Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So Matthew lists the names of all of them. He describes two. He describes Judas as the one who betrayed him. And he describes himself as the tax collector. If you look at the other accounts, Mark, Luke, and John, they, when they list Matthew, they call him by his other name, Levi, but they just say Levi. None of them all point out that he was a tax collector except Matthew. Folks, listen closely, and we're going to go somewhere with this. The four gospel writers wanted all the glory to go to God. It wasn't about them. They could have sold lots of books about my travels with Jesus and gone on tour. But their gospels weren't about them. 
They were all about Jesus, and they intentionally put themselves behind the scenes. And if they had to mention themselves, they did it in a way that said, still about him. Still about him. By the way, Paul did this too. Even though Paul would start his letters with, this is Paul to Timothy, he did the same thing. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at verses 12 through 17. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Some of your translations say I'm the chief of sinners. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. How did he describe himself? I'm the chief of sinners, folks. Now, I want to do something with this tonight real quick. I want to challenge you and caution you. We live in a day and age in which the church wants to magnify the minister. And there's a lot of ministers who want to be magnified. Beware of any preacher that brings the glory to themselves. Our job is to bring the glory to Jesus Christ. As John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. Oh, this problem of ministries around the personalities of the preachers is going on in the world for a long, long time. Actually, you can trace it all the way back to the early church. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look what Paul had to deal with there. And look at how he responded to it. In chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 7. Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos waters, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Stop looking at the conduit for God's grace. There's all different types of giftings. There's all different types of callings. And when you start saying, well, I like pastor so-and-so better than pastor so-and-so. If you've been a church, in a church for any length of time, you know that you have heard people say, so-and-so was a good pastor, so-and-so was a bad pastor. So-and-so was a good preacher, so-and-so was a bad preacher. And what's the problem is, is you're looking at the man. We're just conduits. It's no accident that we didn't name this Jim Johnson Ministries. 
just the preacher. I've just been called by God to preach and to teach his word. And I don't want people following Jim. I want to point you to Jesus Christ. and Beware anybody that wants you to follow them. They need to be pointing you to Jesus. And Matthew went out of his way to not put his name in this book. And when he had to mention Matthew, he said, the tax collector. Isn't that cool? Because it's about Jesus. This is a book of the genealogy of who? Oh, it's more than just Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. You're going to see those weren't just little add-ons. That's the whole purpose of the book, which we're going to get to in a little bit tonight. Now, the Jewishness of Matthew's audience will become very clear as we study this book because of the many different things that Matthew does in writing this gospel. And I'm going to give you six things that he does that evident, gives evidence to the, the Jewishness of his audience. Now, before I give you these six, let me say one other thing to you as well. Actually, maybe two. Matthew actually does not give a chronological account of Jesus' life. If you try to read Matthew as a chronology, it's going to mess you up. Because Matthew just is compiling episodes and events from Jesus' life because his purpose is writing to the Jew, Jewish Christians that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We're going to get to why in the world would he write to Christians when they already believe. We'll get to that in a second. But his purpose is writing to Jewish converts that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in doing so, he's just going to say, oh, and Jesus did this. Oh, and Jesus did that. Oh, and Jesus did that. And Jesus said these things. And Jesus said those things. But he doesn't put them in order. And so when you try to read it, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, it's going to get you confused. As we go through the Gospel of Matthew, I'm going to be using the other Gospel accounts to put them in chronological order, or at least tell you when in Jesus' timeline this happened or whatever. But don't try to read it like chapter 1 happened before chapter 2 and chapter 3 happened before chapter 4. Other Gospel accounts do that. Matthew doesn't. That'll help you a lot. Another thing is this. Some people try to break the book of Matthew into five segments, and possibly that is the case. Some think that because Matthew has such a Jewish mindset and a Jewish background and Jewish roots. Remember, Matthew was a tax collector, but he was a Jew who worked for the Romans. But he was a Jew. And there are some that think because there were five books of the Old Testament or, or the law, the Pentateuch, Matthew, I mean, sorry, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and so on, that he broke his Bible down into five segments. And you could actually even do that. You could break the book of Matthew into five segments. There are different discourses, and there's sections where it ends with, after Jesus said these things, and then after Jesus said these things. Like, for example, the Sermon on the Mount would be one. Matthew chapter 10, where he sends off his disciples, chooses the 12 and sends them off, could be another. Uh, we could just go on and on. His teaching on the kingdom of God, and as you're going to see in a little bit, it's called the kingdom of heaven in Matthew. But th those different things. There are five different segments you could break it down to. I'm not one of these ones that tries to read into a whole lot of that stuff. It's interesting I wouldn't go a whole lot further than that, but it's interesting. So let me give you six things from the book of Matthew that will help you realize the Jewishness of his audience and help you in your interpretating. I did it. I did that last night, too. I said interpretating. Interpretation of the book of Matthew. All right. The first thing we see is this. As we saw earlier, Matthew only begins his genealogy with Abraham, while Luke traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam. Again. Matthew's writing to Jews 
And he's wanting to show Jews that Jesus is the one promised from Abraham. All right. Number two, Matthew quotes from the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming Messiah over 60 times. There's going to be over 60 Old Testament quotes, passages that he's going to use in this book about the coming promised Messiah. By the way, that would have made no sense to a non-Jewish audience. All those quotes from the Old Testament, big deal. But to the Jew, very important. Number three, Matthew cites Jewish customs without explaining them. Other gospel writers explain the Jewish customs for their audiences. I'm going to show you this. Mark does it. John does it. Go with me to Mark real quick. Uh, in Mark chapter 7, Mark's audience wasn't predominantly Jewish. And so when he was describing something that happened as a Jewish custom or a tradition, he explained what was going on because the audience wouldn't have understood. Mark chapter 7, look at verses 1 through 4. It says, now when the Pharisees gathered to him, to Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Do you see that? Some of your Bibles have them in parentheses. He explains, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. They even wash where they sit. Now, some of you say, well, well, why wouldn't everybody wash? I mean, come on, <laughs> with germs. You have to keep in mind, back in that day, there wasn't hand sanitizer everywhere around as you go through a doorway. If you've ever been on a cruise, you, before you can get in the, into the dining hall, washy-washy, happy-happy. And we, we, we just think, man, everybody washes their hands before they eat. No, not everybody did that back then. But the Jews didn't do it because they wanted to be germ-free. It was a ceremonial. They had to be clean. And just in case they had touched something that would made them unclean, they had to be washed. Oh, and by the way, the Pharisees even taught the way, the proper way to do it. And you had to have the water run down off your fingers. You couldn't do it this way. It, it was crazy. But Mark, writing to a non-Jewish audience, as the Pharisees and the scribes are talking to Jesus and saying, you guys aren't following the tradition of the elders. Your disciples are eating without washing their hands. They're not saying, oh, gross. They're saying, oh, they broke the law. Mark, because his audience wasn't Jewish, explained about that. Do you understand? Matthew never explains any of the traditions. As he writes about all the things, he just assumes his audience will know about their traditions. Let me show you one more. Go to John chapter 19. Look at verse 40. John chapter 19, verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Again, John's gospel was written to the Greeks to prove that Jesus is God. There's seven signs that he brings out in his gospel, a proof that Jesus is God. But because his audience was not Jewish, he explained why they did this burial custom. This was a burial custom or tradition of the Jews. All right? So we've already seen Matthew begins his genealogy only as far back as Abraham, because he's talking to a Jewish audience. Matthew quotes from the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming Messiah over 60 times. And Matthew also cites Jewish customs without explaining them. All right. But a fourth reason 
or evidence that Matthew's audience is mainly Jewish is Matthew constantly refers to Jesus as the son of David. Go back to Matthew 1.1. You'll see that term and you're going to see it all through the gospel. It's going to jump off the pages at you as we read it. Matthew describes Jesus as the son of David. Again, if he was writing to people that weren't Jewish, what would their reaction have been to him saying it was a, he was the son of David? Exactly. David who? Who's David? But because his audience is predominantly Jewish, we're going to hammer this home, by the way, because that's going to make so much more make sense. For example, we've tried to read the church into the book of Matthew so much. How many of you have heard preachers take Matthew 25 and the parable of the sheep and the goats, and they talked about how you don't get to heaven unless you've given somebody water or visited them in prison and you're going to see that actually that was never written to the church. And if you look at the context and who he's writing to, he's talking to the Jews about his second coming because Matthew 25 verse 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, this way, and all his angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. That's going to be here on the earth. And he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. And he's going to be determining at that point, according to Matthew 25 and Joel chapter 3, who of the surviving humans get to live in the millennial kingdom and these brothers of mine that they treated well or didn't treat well is the nation of Israel. But because we've just tried the church is the be all and end all, we've not understood that there's a distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles and the church of God. We've tried to read the church into everything. We're going to be studying Matthew and trying to rightly divide. Who's he talking to? Does this refer to the church? Does this apply to us? Does this not apply to us? We're not going to chuck it and say none of it applies to us, because as you're going to see, and I've already mentioned, he does reference the church in the book of Matthew. There are things here for us. There are other things that will make a whole lot more sense when you realize he wasn't talking to us. He was talking to them. Because there's a distinction between the Jews and the Greeks and the church of God. You're going to find this is a fun, fun study. Matthew's going to come alive to you like you never understood. I'm excited about it because of the things God's been showing me. All right? So number four was Matthew constantly refers to Jesus as the son of David. Number five, Matthew also considers the Jewish regard for the name of God by referring to the kingdom of God as the kingdom of heaven. That's another thing that's thrown everybody off. Because all through the book of Matthew, he writes about the kingdom of heaven. And whenever we hear kingdom of heaven, we think where? Heaven. Actually, as you're going to see, when it talks about the kingdom of heaven in the book of Matthew, he's not talking about heaven. He's talking about the kingdom of God, which is going to be on the earth. All right, let me show you what I mean. I can prove it to you. Go with me to Luke chapter 13. Now, as you're turning to Luke 13, let me explain, because some of you might not understand about the Jewish regard for the name of God. A devout Jew would never, ever, ever say God's name. They would never say Yahweh. They would never say Elohim. They would never say God. If you even have Jewish friends now who are devout and they email with you, they won't say God. They'll write capital G, asterisk, capital D. Because they won't write the name of God. Really devout Jews still to this day will not say God's name. It's too holy to be spoken. Matthew, knowing the Jewishness of his audience, intentionally changes the kingdom of God to the kingdom of heaven. Look in Luke chapter 13. Look closely at verses 18 through 21. All right, Luke 13, verse 18. He, Jesus, said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? 
And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew, and it became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So here we see that Jesus, in Luke's account, says, How can I compare, how can I describe to you the kingdom of God? The first illustration was what? It's like a mustard seed. We'll, we'll explain that all when we get to that section. All right, And then he goes on and says again, And how shall I compare the, describe to you the kingdom of God? And he said it's like what? Leaven. All right. All right. Go to Matthew 13 now. And look at verses 31 through 33 in Matthew's account of that exact same episode. Matthew 13, starting in verse 31, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and make his nest in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. You see it? Matthew didn't say kingdom of God because of the Jewishness of his audience. They would have been offended with that. So when you see kingdom of heaven... In the book of Matthew, it's not talking about heaven. It's talking about the kingdom of God that's going to be on the earth. Now, as you're going to also see, as we get into the kingdom of God, as we get into that section of Matthew, the kingdom of God has a lot of compartments. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was pictured in Israel. It's now being carried out through the lives of the believers in the church age as God has his kingdom in and through us. But it will be finally consummated on the earth when Jesus comes back. We're going to break that all down and show you from scriptures how the Bible teaches all that. There's a lot of confusion about the kingdom of God because Jesus says the kingdom doesn't come at noticeable, it's within you and all this stuff. And people have said that's the kingdom now. There's no literal kingdom anymore. And I'm going to show you all of the scriptures as you take the whole of scripture and you put it all together, you get a correct understanding. So I'm going to give you guys something they didn't get last night. All right. I want to just show you something that will hopefully burn into your brains the importance of using the whole of Scripture to build your doctrine. One of the problems that we have in the church today is very few pastors spend as much time as they're supposed to in the Word. Now, it's not always their fault. Part of it's your fault. Because you've expected the pastor to be there every time you have a phone call, every time you have a need. You've expected the pastor to visit in the hospital and to visit you in your house and to be at every meeting and to counsel you and to answer. The Bible actually says that the guys who have been called by God to preach and teach the Word of God should be spending our time in this book and in prayer. The early church in Acts chapter 6 started to have those same issues. And then when there was a dispute about the feeding of the widows between the Greek widows and the Jewish widows... They rent to the pastors, but the apostles wisely said it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word and prayer to wait on tables. By the way, yeah, exactly. The deacon, but we, even, we even then mess the deacons up and say, you deacons are supposed to take care of all of it too, and that's never been God's design. But don't get me too far into this, all right? So they wisely said we're supposed to be spending our time in the word and prayer. But because most pastors don't get to spend so much time in word and prayer, they just use a verse here and a verse there. You go to most churches today, you're going to hear teaching that takes a passage of Scripture, and let's just talk about this. Problem is, you can take a passage of Scripture and make it say whatever you want. 
But then you keep reading and you realize, well, maybe I didn't get that right. When you use the whole of Scripture, it'll help you interpret it correctly. Let me give you an example. Go with me to John chapter 3. One of the best examples I found anywhere in the Word to illustrate this. All right, in John chapter 3, we'll start in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them, and Jesus was baptizing. Do you see it? Okay. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because water there was plentiful, and the people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. All right, now, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, that's Jesus, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Now, don't read any further. Wouldn't it have been cool to have been baptized by Jesus? I could build a whole sermon on how awesome it would have been to have been baptized by Jesus. But that's not using the whole of Scripture to build my theology. Go to John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Don't, verse 22 and verse 26, read like Jesus was the one doing the baptizing? Sure does. And I could have convinced you that Jesus baptized people. And you would have wanted to, would have wanted to get in line to have been baptized by Jesus. But if you use the whole of Scripture, you'll realize Jesus didn't baptize anybody. His disciples did the baptizing. Do you see the importance of using the whole of Scripture to build your theology? When we go through Matthew... We're not just going to study Matthew, folks. We're going to study Mark and Luke and John. And I think we already referenced 60 Old Testament passages that prophesy about the Messiah. You think you're here to study the book of Matthew. No, you're not. We're going to study the Bible. We're just going to use Matthew to get us started. As we go through the book verse by verse and break it down, we're going to use the whole of the scriptures. And it's going to be a lot of fun. That's why it's important that we build our theology from the whole of Scripture, not just a few verses, all right? And that's what's gotten us into a mess. Now, there's a sixth reason that Matthew is provable that his audience was Jewish. As we're going to see, all of this book's major themes are rooted in the Old Testament and set in light of Israel's messianic expectations. Let's say that again. All of this book, Book of Matthew's major themes, are rooted in the Old Testament, and they're set in light of Israel's messianic expectations. Matthew speaks of God's coming kingdom 32 times. 32 times in this gospel, he talks about the coming kingdom. All right? So, like I said, a proper understanding of Matthew's audience will help us to a proper interpretation of the book. You ready? Let's start Matthew. That was the introduction. But you'll be out of here at 8. Don't worry. Where we stop is where we pick up. But we're going to finish. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We're going to break this verse down backwards. We're going to start with Abraham and why he says the son of Abraham and the son of David and then Jesus Christ. All right. Matthew begins his book with Jesus' Jewish lineage and that he could be traced all the way back to Abraham. 
Go back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. A very familiar passage, but in Genesis 12, we see a hint to this one that's going to come from Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Said, now the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you, and I'll make you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing, and I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. By the way, that kind of blows away the theory of Jesus dying only for the elect. Doesn't it? In this one coming from Abraham, in him, through him, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. There's a hint there. We are not going to take the time tonight to walk you through it. But all the way, if you follow God's promises to Abraham, as he promises about this coming promised child by faith, Isaac and then Jacob and so on, there's going to be what we call progressive revelation. It's hinted at here. In Abraham's promise that through him all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's a hint at Jesus. And that revelation continues to grow all the way through the Old Testament. You're going to see some of that tonight a little bit as well. And it culminates in the fact that, oh, by the way, remember how the Old Testament's been hinting and progressively revealing that through Abraham is going to be this promised one? Jesus can be traced all the way back to Abraham. He's in the lineage of Abraham. He fulfills that part of the prophecy. You see it? He goes all the way back. You can trace, it, trace his lineage and his family, which we'll get to in the next couple of weeks. You can trace his lineage and his family line all the way back to Abraham. He fulfills part of the prophecy. He, he meets that. But he was not only the descendant of Abraham. Jesus was a descendant of David too, thus lining himself up with those prophecies. Because as I told you, there's a hint there in Genesis 12 that begins to be revealed more and more about the descendants of Abraham and this promised one that's going to come from him and through his line. And there comes a point where it gets real specific and even says, oh, and this promised one's going to come through David. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, look at verses 1 through 5. Now look closely at how the prophecy is worded. God doesn't waste words, and every word he uses in prophecies are very important, and you have to look at them closely and slowly sometimes. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Okay? Who's Jesse? Does anybody know who Jesse is? It's the father of David, King David. David's father was Jesse. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. All right? So there's going to come a shoot from the stump of Jesse. You got Jesse, and a shoot's going to come from Jesse. That's David. And a branch from that shoot is going to produce fruit. All right? And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And in his delight shall be, shall be the, in the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. 
And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. That's going to be important later on. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So here we see progressive revelation. we got this one coming that's going to come through Abraham as you trace his lineage. Oh, and he's going to also come from the stump of Jesse. And there's going to be a shoot from Jesse, which we know is David. And a branch from that is going to be this promised one that's going to rule the whole earth with righteousness. Go to Jeremiah chapter 23. It gets even more specific. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a what? A righteous branch. Now keep in mind, Isaiah prophesied what we read in Isaiah 11 before Jeremiah did. Jeremiah and Isaiah lived around the same time. Isaiah died before Jeremiah did, but their ministries overlapped a little bit as well. But Isaiah, God prophesies through Isaiah, and then we get a little bit more revelation from God through Jeremiah. And behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. All right? Now, this is what Matthew's trying to point out. If you follow Jesus' lineage back, as you're going to see later on in our study, not tonight, but you're going to trace his lineage not only on his father's side of Joseph, but also on his mother's side of Mary. And that's very important, as you're going to see later on. Both on his mother's and his father's side, you can trace his lineage back to David, to Abraham. Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David, the Christ, the promised one. The Christ in the Hebrew mindset is the word Messiah. The anointed one. The one promised. All right? Now, most of the Jews, though, miss the fact that the son of David would be God himself. They just missed it. Go with me real quick to Matthew 22, and you'll see Matthew deals with this when we get to chapter 22, which I think will be around the year 2030, I think, or whatever. We'll see how far we get. But Matthew 22, look at verses 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees, Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He then said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Go with me real quick to Psalm 110. This is where Jesus is quoting from. A passage that the Jews knew full well was referring to the promised Messiah, the coming Christ. Look closely at Psalm 110. We'll read the whole chapter. It's not real long. The Lord says, who's writing this, by the way? You see it in your headings. David writes, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power in holy garments from the womb in the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The Jews knew full well this was a prophecy about the Messiah. You know why? Because there's a lot of hints that are all tied together. I don't know if you caught it yet or not, but these prophecies about the coming Messiah that's going to come through David in Isaiah 11 and Jeremiah 23 talked about how he's going to rule and reign on the earth. Oh, but he's not just going to rule and reign on the earth. He's going to wipe out his enemies and he's going to raise up the nation of Israel. They're looking forward to this day when the son of David comes. And so Jesus goes and says, okay, hang on for a second. Um, the Christ, the promised one that you guys are looking for. Whose son is he? They said son of David. He says, well, let me ask you another question then. Um, if David in the spirit calls him Lord, how can he be a son? And they all went, they totally missed that he wasn't just the son of David. He was also God. Now, the Jewish converts understood this, but I'm going to say something to you tonight. I think they understood it about as much as you and I do. Why in the world would Matthew write a gospel about Jesus proving that he was from Abraham and David and that he's the Christ? Why would he write to a group of Jewish converts to Christianity? Don't they already know this? Wouldn't this be for the Jews who don't believe in Jesus? But as we saw, Origen said, it's been clearly known from the beginning. Matthew wrote this to Jewish converts. Why was it written to Jewish converts? Why are we even studying it? Here's why. I'm going to say something to you that I hope the Spirit of God lets sink in. Because even though you're saved, you need to know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You have understood enough to be saved, but do you and I really understand that he's God? That the prophecies, hundreds of them, not only were fulfilled or being fulfilled, do we live our lives today in a way in which shows that we believe Jesus is God? You see the difference? We can answer the question and get it right. Was he the son of Abraham? Yes. Good. Son of David? Yes. Was he the Christ? Yes. You get 100. But do we know it? How many of you took a foreign language? How many of you could get up here and actually speak it? You probably passed the class even, right? But very few of us can actually get up here and speak it. What happened? We knew it. And we got a passing grade. But we need to be reminded and live it, right? We got to use it. I hope this study helps you grow in your walk with the Lord. You know him. 
but you don't. You know him, but you will. And it's pretty cool as we start to see the book of Matthew explode for each of us. Yes, sir, go ahead. Do you think they might, some might have suspected that he was Jesus, but then decided, no, he couldn't be because he wasn't the warrior or the politician that they thought? I'm sure there were, uh, uh, Judas was one. That was one of his reasons why he changed his mind at the end, you know. He didn't, he didn't, well, John the Baptist, it even caused John the Baptist to question a little bit when he was sitting in prison, which we'll get to. That's Matthew 11. We'll get to that and look at all that. There's a part of it. Oh, by the way, there's more, by the way. There's more than, than uh, um, just the fact that the Jewish converts needed to be reminded and grow in that knowledge. They had family members that needed to know this truth. And the more they knew it, the more they could share it. You're going to be learning things that God's going to bring to your remembrance as you share the gospel with people you're going to start running into a lot more Jews who are being drawn by the Spirit. As we get closer and closer to the return of Jesus Christ, he's going to be moving his, Jews from the, his drawing from the Gentiles back to the Jews. And, you're, and it's happening right now in the, across the globe. Jewish people are starting to get really curious about who Jesus really is. And you're going to be able to share with them because you'll have understanding of Jewish things in the Scriptures and the Old Testament prophecies, and you're going to be able to talk to them as well. There are many, many reasons why Matthew wrote to his, this group and why it's important for us but those are just a couple. Go back real quick to the passages that we looked at in Isaiah 11 and Jeremiah 23. There were hints there that the promised one would be God. You might have missed it. In Isaiah chapter 11, before we get there, just jump back to chapter 9. See, Two chapters before we get to chapter the prophecy about the one coming from the shoot of the stump of Jesse and the branch from David. Two chapters before that in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, God said through Isaiah this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. What's his name? Mighty God. Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. So he's already said before we get to chapter 11, he's already said that the name of this one is going to be Mighty God. Oh, and by the way, if you were to go look at, we don't have time tonight to do it, but if you go look at Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, you'll see that when John gets to go into the throne room of heaven and he's taken up and he sees what is to come in the, after the end of the, during the tribulation period and at the end and all that, he sees the throne of God and before the throne of God there are the seven spirits of God. Go to Romans, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 11, look at verse 2. Right, we'll go to verse 1. And there shall come from a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. By the way, if you don't mind writing in your Bibles, put a number one over Lord. The Spirit of the Lord, one. The Spirit of wisdom, two. Put a two above wisdom. Understanding, put a three above understanding. Spirit of counsel, put a four above counsel. Put a five above might. Put a six above the spirit of knowledge. And the fear of the Lord, Number seven, seven spirits in this individual. We see in Revelation, in progressive Revelation, 
Oh, and by the way, if you read chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Revelation, you'll see that they're the seven spirits of God, and Jesus is described as the one who came from David. There you get a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there, and it begins to explode. Oh, go to Jeremiah chapter 23 again. There was a hint there as well to the fact that he would be God. They were looking for just a man. Jeremiah 23, look at verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. He's going to be God. He's going to be God himself. It's been there all along. Most of the Jews missed it because they were looking for just a man. The disciples were the same way. They're in a boat with Jesus and the storm's all brewing and waves are crashing into the boat and Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat on a pillow. I love the fact that Jesus took naps. I love naps. But they quickly wake him and they say, hey, don't you care if we perish? And he gets up and he speaks to the wind and the waves and he says, peace be still. And the Bible says it became instantly still. And you look at the scriptures, the scripture says, the disciples said, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey. In other words, we thought we knew this guy. We don't. Folks, let me just tell you, as we get into this study of Matthew, you know him, but you don't. He's not just the descendant of Abraham. He's not just the descendant of David. He's God. A lot of times we act like Oh, Lord, help me. But we think he's like us, maybe a little more powerful. By the way, if he's God, he gets to say no. How many people get mad when God disappoints them, lets them down, doesn't spare them cancer? Mama dies. I didn't get the job. Pastor Mary, she said no. Is he going to be able to be Lord in your life where he gets to call the shots? There's nothing wrong with asking. But when you say Lord, he gets to say yes and no, and he gets to run his world how he wants. See, a lot of us think he's just a man. And that's why we get mad at him. Oh, I think he's God. So you're mad at God because he didn't do what you wanted. We're going to really come to realize in this study that he's God. By the way, if you look at Revelation 19, we don't have time to go there tonight. If you look at Revelation 19, when Jesus does come back, the Bible said he's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Does that sound familiar? We saw that prophecy way back in Isaiah. We're going to close tonight with Luke 22, because we're in a study of Matthew, and I just figured it'd be great to close with Luke tonight. Go to Luke 22 and look at verses 66 through 71. Jesus is in his, uh, the end of his sham of a trial right before the cross. In Luke 22, starting in verse 66, when the day came, that's the day of his crucifixion. The assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, 
And they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, remember Matthew's writing to say that he is the Christ. If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you won't believe. And if I ask you whether I'm the Christ or not, you won't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? Then he said, he said to them, you say that I am. In other words, you just said it. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Was Jesus proven right in a second there? He says, look, if, if I tell you, you're not going to believe me. And if I ask you, you're not going to answer. But from now on, you're going to see me, and I'm going to be at the, power, the right hand of the power of God. So you're the son of God? Yeah. And they didn't believe him. And they sent him off to be killed. Again, be careful. I've just hinted at it. We got that same problem in us. I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to answer honestly. Is Jesus God? I'm just telling you to be careful. You understand what I mean when I say be careful? Because if he's God, he's going to hold you accountable for that knowledge. My prayer is through this study, we'll come to really understand what that means. When Matthew said he's the son of Abraham and the son of David and he is the Christ, he wasn't just saying he's the promised one. He was saying he's God. And I need to know that more. And you need to know that more. Yeah, we know it, but we don't. I love you. See you next week.